Hello, this is uh, Pedro Ramirez, Editor-in-Chief of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. And uh, today I have the great pleasure of doing a podcast on a recent publication titled ESGO Estro Quality Indicators for Radiation Therapy of Cervical Cancer. I have the great pleasure of having two of the authors, the first author, uh, Cyrus Chargary, who is at Salpetriere University Hospital in Paris, France. Uh, and uh, of course, a, a welcome guest back on the podcast, uh, Dr. Christina Fotopoulou, who is in the Imperial College of London in, uh, in the UK. So we're really very, very pleased to have them both to discuss this very important uh, publication. So welcome, uh, Cyrus and uh, Christina. Thank you, Pedro. Thank you. Thank you very much for having us. Always a pleasure. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for, um, for uh, obviously uh, answering uh, many questions that uh, have come up with regards to the, uh, to the manuscript. And, and, uh, and of course, a, a very important document uh, for all of us who treat uh, uh, patients with cervical cancer. And I wanted to start, uh, Christina, with you. And uh, I wonder if you can just start by discussing as to what were um, the reasons for putting together this document and, and how did you capture all of this expertise in putting together this, uh, this manuscript? So we, um, in the, within the frame of, uh, framework of ESCO, the European Society of Canyon Oncology, where we have started since 2016 with uh, the leadership of dentistry law back then as the chair of the guidelines committee, to um, define and establish quality indicators and, and guidelines for the um, treatment of gynecological cancers. We started an effort back then um, in the territory of ovarian cancer, and then we expanded to cervical cancer and endometrial cancer. And uh, we were very successful in um, defining uh, and, and, uh, and, and uh, recommending guidelines for the surgical treatment of cervical cancer. And uh, we wished to expand this in collaboration with ESTRO, which is our sister society, um, because as you all know, cervical cancer cannot be only treated with surgery, but also radiotherapy, to combine our efforts and to establish quality indicators, not just for surgery, but to, um, but to certify and accredit centers for the management of cervical cancer. So not just surgery, but overall management. Because one cannot anymore nowadays differentiate between one or the other, between surgery and, uh, and radiotherapy. It's all together. It's all, all one package. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, obviously, incredibly relevant as uh, where cervical cancer is prevalent in many of the low and middle income countries, uh, many of these patients will present with disease that is non-surgical. So all together, the more relevance to um, this, uh, this document. Um, uh, Sirius, I, I wanted to go into some of the details of the uh, of the manuscript and in uh, this uh, consensus uh, statement. Um, and I wanted to start by asking you about the workup because obviously that's really important. As we see a patient who's not a surgical candidate, then we start talking about well, uh, obviously, what is the best strategy to determine the best radiotherapy treatment for for the patient. Um, this uh, first question comes also from uh, one of our fellows, uh, Giuseppe Cucinella, and he asked the, the recommendation is for minimal workup for histologically confirmed cervical cancer, a physical examination, of course, pelvic MRI, a PET CT. Is there any room 
for inclusion of transvaginal ultrasound. And I know certainly in Europe, there's many uh, who advocate for the use of ultrasound in the setting of expertise in that type of uh, imaging study. And then also, how does, how does it impact low and middle income countries to be recommending pelvic MRI and PET-CT? So two questions and uh, look forward to hearing your, your uh, opinion about this. Thank you for, for, for the question, which is a very good one. We have uh, in these two questions, the, the proof that uh, what we wanted to, to propose, what is the best way to do radiotherapy and bracket therapy uh, for cervical cancer is not always easy to, to achieve. And we have many countries in the world who don't have access to PET-CT, don't have access to MRI, and people, uh, physicians uh, are doing the best they can to deliver good treatments. But um, for now, um, even if we have an increasing number of studies suggesting that uh, ultrasound can replace MRI for primary staging, for now the standard is MRI uh, for radiotherapy uh, um, preparation, for radiotherapy uh, uh, dosimetry, and also for uh, a time of bracket therapy. So there is a, a, a room for research for ultrasound uh, in high quality treatments, but for now, ultrasound is only when you don't have access to MRI. Yeah. And same for PET-CT. If you don't have access to PET-CT, just do what you can, CT scan. But uh, the objective of these uh, um, um, quality indicators um, is to promote what is uh, supposed to be the best. And this can be used to discuss with uh, healthcare um, uh, po po policy makers to, so that uh, an increasing number of centers can have access to uh, MRI and to, to PET-CT. Yeah, no, I think that's great. And I think it also brings us to the, to the next question, which is actually getting to that treatment. Because obviously, when looking at implementing the appropriate preoperative workup, you want to also make sure that the treatment that that patient needs is not delayed. So one of the next questions from Luigi Davitis is the time from diagnosis to referral to radiotherapy treatment is one of the indicators that you mentioned as a general requirement. Um, what's the rationale for a goal of uh, six weeks and, and how can we optimize that? Um, we, we don't have a very high level of evidence that the, the threshold of six weeks uh, is, is the best one. But what we know is that if you increase the delay from diagnosis to treatment, you will increase the probability that you don't achieve a good control of the disease because of metastasis, because of progression. So we consider that uh, we should identify uh, a time interval that would reflect the capacity of the center to provide the good treatments uh, because uh, uh, over the, the time between diagnosis or the time between the referral and the uh, initiation of radiotherapy is reflecting the access to MRI, access to, 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 to pre-treatment uh, imaging, uh, it, it is reflecting the organizational process, uh, the waiting time for radiotherapy, and uh, everything that is important for quality of treatment. So we, we, we discussed together and we identified these six weeks, uh, which is quite long, but seems to be achievable in a high number of cases. Very well. Um, the, the, obviously, as, as we have uh, discussed, uh, the, the issue of locally advanced cervix cancer it's uh, really uh, very prevalent in, in low and middle income countries. 
Um, Joe, uh, Jorge Hegel from Venezuela, he asked, uh, the highest burden of locally advanced cervical cancer is found in low and middle income countries. And brachytherapy is available in only about 10% of these countries. What do you think could be an alternative in the absence of this resource in most of these countries? And have you thought of a guideline that could facilitate the approach to these patients for those countries? We believe that uh, there is no good alternative to bracket therapy um, because uh, of the impact of bracket therapy on the probability of cure. Of course, as the same for MRI and for PET-CT, if you don't have a bracket therapy facility, just do as you can, EBRT boost or completion surgery, but in no way we can consider um, that uh, the treatment of local advanced cervical cancer would be qualitative if there is no access to bracket therapy. So the cost for bracket therapy facilities is not so high compared to the costs of external radiotherapy uh, uh, facility. And you just need a room, a remote after order, an applicator on your hands to do the bracket therapy. So if you have access to EBRT, I think that you can develop bracket therapy too. And these quality indicators can be used to guide for healthcare providers to develop this access to bracket therapy. Yeah. If I may, if I may, if I may very quickly add, because we, for example, here in the UK, we function as a center for patients from other countries, even who do not have access to bracket therapy. For example, we get patients from Malta and mm. that will come to us for bracket therapy. So I think important is not really to adapt guidelines and lower um, quality, but to build alliances and collaborations so that patients, I mean, patients now are used to travel. We know that you can't just find the specialist treatment next door. Everybody accepts that and this is known. And we need to build alliances so that, so that patients can move between specialist centers and get the treatment they deserve. Excellent. Modern, well, thank, yeah, thank you. Modern bracket therapy is becoming more and more complex. And um, this is clearly uh, an example of the need for centralization, as Christina highlighted. Um, so that uh, even if you don't do the bracket therapy, you can refer the patient for bracket boost. Mm, yeah, excellent. Excellent point. Um, now, uh, Sirius, I, I wanted to ask you because I, I actually also was a little bit uh, you know, interested in in how this came about, this next point in the uh, in the quality indicators, and this question comes from Matt Wager in uh, Wisconsin. Um, he says participation in clinical trials involving radiotherapy is noted as a structural indicator. Should this be more specific? Should patient participation in clinical trials be a component of this structural indices? Realistically, we know that such criteria is not going to be met in a large number of centers to give radiotherapy around the world. Uh, why have you put this into the quality indicators? In other words, the majority of centers don't have clinical trials. It's right. Um, and it's, it's clear that not all the criteria uh, will be met. Um, and if we need to prioritize, for, for sure, bracket therapy access is more important than uh, having clinical research. But we have data showing that um, the, 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 the probability that the patient received uh, an optimal treatment is higher in academic centers participating to clinical research. And there is a 
there are many possibilities in terms of clinical research, not always very complicated, but we can also have prospective cohort studies. Embrace cohort is a very good example of a prospective cohort. And um, the objective is that if you follow uh, a protocol, uh, you will have uh, higher adherence to the guidelines. And uh, there is a process of, uh, of quality control that is done, and that is also a part of improving uh, quality of treatment. So, uh, of, of course, all indicators not, cannot be met, but uh, this is something that should be promoted to have clinical research. Excellent. Um, next question comes from Argentina, Guido Rey Valsaki. Um, he says, considering that a minimum target of 90% of patients receiving intensity modulated radiation therapy or IMRT is required in these quality indicators. Are there any estimations of the accessibility to IMRT outside of the US and Europe? I don't have the exact numerics, but uh, the number of centers with intensity modulated radiotherapy in Asia, in South America, in North Africa is now becoming very high. Um, there is clearly in some parts of the world, especially in Africa, a lack of machines. Uh, but when the machines do exist, the probability that IMRT is used is becoming uh, more and more high. It's becoming higher. Fantastic. And I'll ask one question before turning over to Christina and giving you a little bit of a break. Uh, again, this question from Guido in Argentina. And he says, as emphasized in the guideline, a structured follow-up program is necessary to report and review late adverse events. Are long-term side effects significantly different these days after doing IMRT only to the pelvis versus to the pelvic and the periodic region, considering that periodic radiation is often done prophylactically? In terms of bowel morbidity, uh, intensity modulated radiotherapy has decreased the probability of acute and late uh, moderate and severe events. But uh, even with uh, in the era of IMRT, we have strong correlation that do exist between the volume of the bowel that is irradiated and the morbidity. And even with intensity modulated radiotherapy, the impact of prophylactic radiotherapy will be high, um, in, at least is not neglectable in terms of uh, priority of complications. So for that reason, there are some centers that propose priority clathnode dissections to, to avoid prophylactic radiotherapy. And this is something to be discussed, but uh, we don't want to promote systematic prophylactic radiotherapy of the parotic area because this will increase the risk of complication. Great, and actually that's a perfect segue for uh, the, the next question to Christina, because you did mention the possibility of surgical uh, evaluation of the periodic notes. This question from Jorge Hegel uh, back in Venezuela. He says, uh, given that PET-CT is the most optimal imaging tool for detection of lymph node metastases, do you consider that periodic surgical staging is necessary when you have positive pelvic lymph nodes and negative periodic lymph nodes on imaging, particularly after the negative results of the uterus 11 trial? 
So thank you for this question. The answer is no. The answer is that we don't have evidence to do that. And I mean, we have been talking now in the last, in the, we have been talking so far about um, accessibility and resources in low-income countries. And now we're talking about doing something that is extra and would increase mobility, would increase money, would increase everything. Yeah? So we know that the Uterus 11 study, and this is a study that we did in Germany where I, when I participated when I was in the Charité, it was negative. It had a benefit only in a very small substage of patients, I think the 2B ones. However, um, you all know now that Alejandro Martinez is doing uh, within the Gineco the Parola study. The Parola study is a study exactly addressing this question in patients with a positive um, patient notes whether there is a benefit of uh, parotidal root staging. So the answer is not outside of clinical trials. And very quickly, just in the, um, on the what you asked before about access to brachytherapy and and all and clinical trials. Our aim within ESCO was to establish guidelines for Europe, mainly this European society, but also beyond, um, for the optimal conditions. Uh, this doesn't mean that we neglect, of course, or we dismiss the needs of low-income countries, but we are, or ESCO is in the process of adapting and developing guidelines for lower and in, in middle, middle-income countries. However, still countries who have access to brachytherapy and full facilities and clinical trials deserve also guidelines <laughs> that, that set criteria. Yeah. No, it's a very excellent, excellent point, uh, Christina. Thank you for um, highlighting that. Um, I, I, just to stay on the topic also of periodic uh, evaluation, I'll go back to Cyrus and then back to Christina with another question on surgery. Uh, but Cyrus, if um, this question comes from Giuseppe Caruso, and he says, are, are there any specific treatment quality indicators that you can recommend for the extended field radiotherapy? No, there is no specific QI for, 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 this, for this issue. Uh, but if you follow the last European guidelines, um, there is an indication for prophylactic radiotherapy of the lower parotic area, at least in case of upper pelvic lymph node extension or multiple lymph nodes. Um, and we have some protocols that do exist and we can follow the protocols. Um, Christine has um, highlighted the need to, to promote high quality treatments also in other parts of the world than uh, countries who have a very uh, high access to, to, to Iberty and bracket therapy is completely right. And the ESTRO is also working on that. And we have developed guidelines for centers who don't have access to, to MR-guided bracket therapy. And we can do CT-guided bracket therapy with a good uh, level of, high level of quality too. And this is something very important that works so that we can promote uh, these, these types of treatments too. And, uh, but but for, to, to, coming back, to come back to the question, we didn't have a specific QI uh, for parotic radiotherapy. Very well. And uh, Christina, this question is from uh, Seda uh, Sahinakar in uh, Turkey. And we've been talking about, obviously, periodic lymph nodes that are negative on imaging. But her question is, what is a surgical recommendation for bulky periodic lymph nodes before chemoradiotherapy? And is there a certain cutoff of lymph nodes where the radiotherapy will be quite effective versus we definitely need to remove them? Okay. So um, we, as, as you all know, this, the criteria of measurement of lymph nodes in, uh, in 
in imaging in general is the short axis. Yeah, it's not the long axis. So very often you have the short axis that is not above one centimeter, but still the whole lymph node is bulky or is positive. So in general, we say um, anything bulky and also an ovarian cancer equivalent is more than 10 centimeters, 10, 10 millimeters. Now, in um, the uterus 11 study, there was a role of debulking in, in bulky nodes above four centimeters, um, if I remember right. Um, so, yes, we can. I mean, we will see also in the in the Parola study, there will be a sub uh, there will be an analysis um, in patients with bulky nodes. It is still questionable, yeah, uh, but uh, we can't say that we have to remove bulky nodes above one centimeter. They should be really more, 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 more bulky. And in the uterus eleven, it was around three four centimeters. Yeah. So, so remove anything above one centimeter. No, I said no. I said not to remove. No, bulky is um, around three in the uterus. Eleven was, I think, four centimeters. Four, not not one. Okay, all right. We would really recommend, yeah. Okay, and then uh, Christina, this question is from Luigi Devitis, and it's about follow up and surveillance. And uh, he talks about obviously patient outcomes is a quality indicator, and that's very important. And to help centers achieve this goal. Um, what would you suggest to develop a structured follow-up program dealing with not only oncologic outcomes, but yeah, quality right. of life issues like sexual rehabilitation? And, and how do you do that outside of a very specialized center? Um, okay, so that is one of the most important topics. And this is something that I remember with Cyrus also, we had long and long discussions. Um, I just checked again in terms of the bulky, it was two to four centimeters. So anything above two, not anything above one. Yeah. Okay. okay so um, it is absolutely out of uh, any doubt that currently oncologic follow up does not only include um, tumor related symptoms, but also heterogenic toxicity, quality of life. And especially that is why long term survivors are even more very important, especially for the long term survivors. Yeah. Um, we there is a trend also in cervical cancer, but also in ovarian cancer that uh, we now we have seen it also in the in the during the pandemic that we shift away from the face to face traditional follow up every three months, but that we go to virtual, yeah, or to even patient initiated follow ups where the patients targeted say what their problem is. Because usually what happens in the face-to-face -face meetings is that they come, we ask them about specific tumor-related symptoms, and very often we as doctors, we neglect everything else. Whereas if we do it the other way, where well, the patient really tells us what concerns them, uh, it's actually a bit more targeted and more efficient for, for both ways. So we have very clearly um, delineated and elaborated in our guidelines that, yes, we need to address uh, toxicity from radiotherapy, sexual function scores, and sexuality, pain, urinary incontinence, stenosis, GI symptoms. So all this is part of the follow-up. And this is not something that can only be done in specialist centers. Absolutely not. Mm -hmm. To discuss with the patient about sexuality, vaginal dilatators, this doesn't need to be in a specialist center. In a, in a, not sorry, in a, in a center, in a special center, has any way to be, but in a, in a high income countries, even low income, it's all a matter of tradition, all a matter of mindset, much more than than than, than matter of uh, of infrastructure. It's more a, a matter of mindset, and to go very there, and expand there. Very very well, um, Cyrus. Uh, 
interesting and difficult topic. Uh, this next question, Giuseppe Caruso, he has quality treatment indicators for radiation therapy focus primarily on primary treatment. Have you also discussed quality indicators for re-irradiation with stereotactic radiotherapy for in-field recurrences? The answer is no, but the question is very, very important because uh, with the modern radiotherapy techniques, we have the possibility to do re-irradiation in specific cases, lymph node relapse in most of the cases, uh, sometimes bracket therapy to, to treat vaginal relapses, for example. Uh, the place of re-radiation for uh, relapses within the true pelvis is, is very, very low. And um, this situation is so rare because we have no less than 10% of local relapse uh, that it's difficult to, to have these this, this, this quality indicators dedicated for this situation. But uh, we need to have some, some guidelines to, 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 to indicate the re-radiation. Uh, but uh, the quality indicators, it's too, 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 too early for that. Very well. And um, one last question for you, uh, Cyrus, is uh, this one from Giuseppe Cucinella. And he's interested um, in, in this element of quality of life uh, and assessment of complications. Um, he says, you know, one issue in assessing this is the variability of the methods used to report adverse outcomes and to report quality of life. Patient reported outcome measures should be integrated into clinical practice. Do you have a validated questionnaire specifically for radiotherapy that you use in your institution? Yes, yes, we have. Um, we have quite a lot um, in, in the literature of quite a lot number of, uh, of uh, patient reported outcome um, questionnaire from EURTC, uh, from ESTRO, uh, and um, Whatever the questionnaire is, the importance is that you have this type of questionnaire to to look at how does the patients uh, has uh, as uh, um, consider uh, the, the treatment was effective in terms of quality of life uh, has side effects and uh, you need to have one uh, you can choose the one you want. Uh, we have some many that have been validated in the literature. Excellent. Um, now, Christina, you brought up this. Previously, and this, this question comes from Matt Wager. He's in uh, Wisconsin here in the U.S., and I, and I think he he brings up a very valid point. Uh, he says treatment in high volume centers equipped to provide chemoradiotherapy and brachytherapy often requires patients to travel considerable distance sometimes to receive care, which impacts delays in completion of treatment, which is a quality indicator noted in these guidelines. Should high volume centers be more proactive, be responsible for improving access to patients remote from their services? Or should these centers work to implement these services in those communities where patients can more readily access them? So um, I think we have, it's a very important question, but we have um, already touched upon this topic uh, many times during this podcast. So there is absolutely no question that with the, with the speed of, high specialization of treatment, both surgically and systemically and also radiotherapeutically, it's important to find this high standard of expertise next door, like next door. This will be impossible because, and it also will not be sustainable. So, um, I mean, you're talking to somebody who works in the UK and the 
UK is one of the first countries in the world with the centralization of care, of oncology care. And um, these guidelines reflect exactly that, that we need universally to have a centralization of oncologic services so that in the entire country, in each country, there are oncology centers distributed so that patients travel, I don't know, half an hour, 40 minutes, depending on, so that they always have access to, um, to, to specialist care. But to have the illusion and say that every small hospital next door to every patient will have the most utmost expertise in brachytherapy, surgery, chemotherapy, clinical trials, this will be impossible and not sustainable. So um, I think what we have shown in these guidelines, and that is why these guidelines are important, not just uh, are important also to work, to, to function as as um, basis of discussion of, of uh, with the governments, yeah, of, uh, in, in, in countries where there is no specialization of care and say, listen, this is where the trend is now universally going. We need from you money, we need from you um, uh, infrastructure to set up a centralized cancer care system. And that is why these guidelines are even more important just as a signal to, 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 to governments and to sta stakeholders and commissioners. Yeah. Yeah, Christina, I'll, I'll go a step further. And, and I think, you know, to, to, to Matt's question with regards to access, because I, I know that, yes, there are many centers that are expert centers, but what are those centers really doing to open the doors for those patients who may not have the resources? And, you know, certainly I can mention many names of very expert centers, but if you have a patient who's extremely poor, they can't go there. So, you know, what, what help is it to that poor patient to have a super expert center if they can get in the door? Why can't they get in there? Well, because it's the nature of, of the fact that they don't attend patients that are poor. Poor, you mean as of money or poor performance status? Money. Oh, no. <laughs> but that is why we're talking about centralization of, of care in a government taxpayer funded system. I'm yeah. here in Imperial obliged to see I'm seeing them for free. Yeah, yeah, and, and that is what needs to happen. Yeah, it it's, it it depends on on the on the on the center and the source. I mean, you're 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 absolutely right, and and that's that's I mean, it's an unfortunate reality that for for many patients around the world, there's a perfectly specialized center, but they just can't get into that specialized center exactly. um, for those purposes. Yeah, so that is why yeah. we need to use those guidelines to promote and 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 encourage the governments to invest money and effort and energy to have free specialization of care, a centralization of care, like a tax-based tax yeah. system, like we have, for example, in the UK. And, and then, Christina, I'll, I'll follow up. And, and this, uh, this is uh, the last question on the podcast. Um, and Cyrus, also, I'd love to hear your, your comments on this as well. Um, this was asked by several of our fellows who are in low-income uh, country. And they said, you know, it's uh, there have been many who have been very critical about guidelines for cervical cancer as they consider that these do not reflect the reality of their everyday practice as they care for patients in very low resource settings when there is no option to send patients to a center where actually there is no center where the government is not really interested in developing these centers. Um, what should practitioners like them do with these guidelines? 
Do you want to? So, I mean, we have again addressed this. Um, ESCO and also together with ESTRO and our sister societies will develop guidelines extra for to adapt for low and middle income countries. This doesn't mean that we have to compromise the quality in the countries who have the facilities and access to, to standard care, to specialist care. Uh, we have uh, in all guidelines and quality indicators so far that we have developed in ESCO a two-tier system, a simple basic accreditation and then center of excellence accreditation so that we address that even uh, within our geographical um, um, areas here. So we, we would never demand that everybody is a center of excellence. I mean, that would be completely illusional. And uh, we tried uh, when we uh, developed this two-tier system to be logical and to be realistic. Um, but as a next step is to adapt these guidelines, yes, to low and, low and middle income countries. On the other hand, also those countries, it's important that they have as a role model the standard that would be ideal so that they know where to go to and again use these guidelines for their governments, for their stakeholders, for their commissioners to increase resources for um, health and for um, provision of uh, oncologic care. Because if there is no high standard, then, then how will you, you know, you have to reach somewhere. We all have to reach, we all ha always have, we all have to have a target. Yeah. Well, Christina, thank you so much. Cyrus, do you want to have any uh, additional statements, closing statements? Very, very brief one. Uh, I would say that um, the, 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 these quality indicators uh, um, did not aim at reflecting what is done in, in, in the world. And um, it, ju it just aimed at uh, providing what, uh, what seems to us to be the best, the best way to do radiotherapy and brachytherapy. And I'm sure that even in high income countries, in many centers, uh, all these quality indicators want to be met. Uh, but this is the basis to improve uh, the way we do radiotherapy and we do brachytherapy for, for, for these patients. Well, I want to thank you both. Uh, really fantastic work, Sarah uh, Sargari and Christina Fotopoulou, and, and all of the other co-authors who also took part in this uh, uh, great collaboration. Uh, it is really uh, always incredibly gratifying to hear practitioners saying, I've already downloaded the quality indicators for radiation therapy that were published in the journal, and uh, we're using that in our institution the ESGO Estro Quality Indicators for Radiation Therapy for Cervical Cancer. Thank you both very much for accepting our invitation and for this excellent discussion. Thank you. Thank, you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye-bye.